your ride ready for spring driving with Dobbs Spring Break Deals. Money saver deals you can use on Goodyear, Pirelli, Cooper, Michelin, and General Tires. Expert auto service, too. Click on GoToDobbs.com for spring break deals now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. This is the Character and Smallman Podcast on 101 ESPN. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Great to have you with us at 701. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers and officially licensed Rolex Jewelry. Good morning, Michelle. How you doing? Good morning, Randy Carriker. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy that the Blues are now 2-0 and on the season. And it certainly isn't the same old Blues. And last night, as I was, uh, a lot of people count sheep. I count Blues that were still, uh, that are still here that were on the Stanley Cup team. And I believe we're at 11. But the new guys are <laughs> rocking and rolling. Well, you had to do that to fall asleep last night. Why? Because of the flurry of activity in the game. Yeah. It got you so amped you and, couldn't fall asleep. And the young guys, I'm literally laying in bed saying, okay, 91's still here, 90's still here, and then counting down, you know. Yeah. Okay, and then and it's weird. Most of the guys that are gone are numbers below 30, and most of the guys that are here are numbers above 30. It's kind of a weird thing. Wow. Yeah, but a lot of, I think, 14 gone and 11 still here. But the new guys coming up big last night in a 7-4 win over the Coyotes. If you didn't stay up to tune in here on 101 ESPN, it was awesome. Uh, Clayton Keller. <laughs> With the power play goal early on, one nothing in favor of the Coyotes. Blues came back. Pavel Buchnevich with his first goal as a member of the Blues at the 7.05 mark. It was 1-1. And right after that goal, Buchnevich got into it with Kraus from Colorado. And Kraus was upset that Buchnevich was kind of going after one of his teammates. And Buchnevich headbutted him. Yikes. Yeah, took a match penalty at the 1853 mark of the first. So the Blues had to kill off a five-minute major. Actually, Kraus went in for two. And then at the beginning of the second period, the Blues had to kill off a three-minute power play for Arizona. And it was tough. And then at the well, right at the end of the power play, right after it expired, Kraus scored to give Arizona a 2-1 lead. But then back come the Blues. Justin Falk scores at the 11-10 mark of the second on the power play. Then the kids got going. <laughs> Jordan. Tyroo's going to cross ice, dump it into the corner behind the net. That one picked up by Arizona, turned over to Cairo. He's in, he shoots, he scores! Jordan Cairo with a laser under the bar, and he puts the Blues on top three to two. 7-14 to go, second period. Unassisted, but a good play by Vladimir Tarasenko to get the puck to him, and Cairo makes it a 2-2 game. Just after that, at the 14-40 mark. Whipped on it, it bounces, they leave it, they shoot, they score! Clem Costin. And Michelle, Jake Neighbors picks up his first point as an NHL player with a great feed on that one. All right, Jake Neighbors. Yeah. So the Blues are rolling. They have the lead. That goal came at the 1440 mark at the 1527 mark. 
Bortuzzo from Costa. Now to Neighbors. Down low behind the net. Spins out of trouble. Keeps the puck behind the goal. Centers. Costa. Oh. He scores. And Costa has two in a hurry. It's 5-2 Blues. 4.33 to go in the second period of play. And the Blues are taking it to the Coyotes. But they weren't done. 50 seconds after that goal by Costin. <laughs> now Cairo brings it in. Toe drags in. Shoots. Score! The Blues are lighting the lamp. They're going to need to change the ball behind Hutton. And it's 6-2 Blues as Cairo tucks it in. 3.43 to go here in the second period. So when Kairu, Kostin, Kostin, Kairu, and it was 6-2 after two, Blues got a goal from Barbashev late, held on for a 7-4 victory, and the offense from the kids, really impressive. Yeah, the young guns stepping up in this one for the Blues, and even before the flurry of activity, Kairu with that pretty patch pass to Buchnevich early yeah. in the first period, but you couldn't have asked for much more from your young players last night. You talked about all of the players that aren't here anymore from the 2019 Stanley Cup team. This is a different team, and for the Blues to have success, they're going to need these young kids to continue to play like this. And by the way, because of the headbutt, I do think Bujnevich is going to wind up getting suspended. Probably. But his goal was pretty, too. And he looks like yeah. he has a lot of the elements that teams are looking for. He, he looks like a legit power forward. Yeah, and the headbutt, you, you don't like that he put his team in that position. That's not a, a, a good spot for the Blues to be in. However, he's tough. Yeah, and it, it was a product of him playing physical. Yeah. And, and Kraus went after him. So Jordan Cairo, the Blues score four goals in five minutes five goals in five minutes there in the second period um yeah it was, like i said you know it was a momentum game kind of we got all the momentum within those like five to ten minutes and you know we got a lot of goals in there which is huge for us blues outshoot arizona 33 26 and by the way the coyotes are not that good but it's a win and a win is an, a win is a win and now the blues will play one more before they come home on saturday night for their opener they play the golden knights tomorrow night now, Jordan Cairo, after the game, was asked about what he did in the offseason to help him look so good. And he said, a lot of my mom's Greek food, for sure. A lot of Greek salads and a lot of chicken, chicken Slovakis. Okay. There, there seems to be a nickname there. The Greek salad. He can't be the Greek freak, but the Greek salad, something like that. Yeah. You know, we got to we got to marinate on something. this one because... I need to start eating some Greek salads, I guess, before the show. I, uh, I I like much Greek food. Not a big fan of the Greek desserts, Michelle. Baklava, not, not your jam? Not a baklava guy. Uh, there are some Greek cookies that I like, but I, I, I love myself a gyro. Now Euros and then. are awesome. And the, the Greek, the Mediterranean pizzas are fantastic. So I could eat probably, and I think there was a Greek diet that was a fad. The a Mediterranean years. diet. Yeah. Big deal. I, I could do that, but and I, I guess it would be a good thing that I don't like the desserts. Yeah, I don't know if the baklava is on the Mediterranean. <laughs> what is it, too flaky for you? Yeah, just, I, don't, I don't think it's sweet enough. Hmm. I like a brownie. I don't know. I wonder if they have Greek brownies. So you've got uh, a Mediterranean diet American desserts. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. We can pull that off, right? For sure. <laughs> Last night, Major League Playoffs, ALCS game number three. This on the heels of a 9-5 win for the Boston Red Sox in game two of the ALCS. Well, they did it again last night. The Red Sox already were up 2-0, and they had had two grand slams in the last game when Kyle Schwarber stepped to the plate with the sacks jammed. Schwarber hits it a ton. 
That's our friend Joe Buck with the call on Fox. That one came in the second inning, 6 nothing after 2, 9 nothing after 3, and the Red Sox rolled 12-3, and they now have Michelle uh, two games to one lead in the best-of-seven ALCS. Boston, the first team with three slams in a postseason series. Crazy. Yeah, and... Even though they've hit the daylights out of the ball, and I gave you the statistics on the Yankees and Pirates in 1960, in which the Yankees outscored the Pirates 55-27 in seven games, but the Pirates wound up winning the series. I don't think that Houston's pitching can hold up. And they've always been very creative. This year, it's Dusty Baker utilizing starting pitchers out of the bullpen. But they don't have Justin Verlander anymore. Mm -hmm. They don't have... uh, Garrett Cole anymore. It's one thing when you are throwing those guys. Another altogether when you can't use Zach Greinke anymore and you're trying to use Jose Urquidy and uh, Yimi Garcia. It just doesn't work when the pitchers aren't as good. And for that reason, I think Boston is going to win this series. Can you believe this? The Red Sox again? A lot of people didn't even think they were a playoff team and here they are. Think about it. In, In 2004, so we're talking 17 years ago, they had not won a World Series in 86 years. Yep. 04, 07, 13, and 18. They've won four since then. And I don't think they'll, I didn't think they would win this series. So, so even though I don't think they'll beat the National League representative, they'll be there and they'll have a chance. And I think a lot of people thought that's what the Cardinals might be on the National League side. They mm-hmm. might sneak in, win that wild card game. They were hot at the right time and end up in the World Series. So the Red Sox are doing what a lot of people envision the Cardinals doing. Yeah. Monday Night Football, the most important thing. Oh, should we should we mention that there are two games today, by the way? The Braves and Dodgers meet yes. this afternoon at 4 o'clock and then another night game in the American League. So plenty of action for you. And as a matter of fact, tonight we'll have ALCS game for for you with the pregame at 6.30 here on 101 ESPN. I was so excited about Monday Night Football because just the two of us won again. That's right. Just the two of us. And that's the most important thing. The Buffalo defense and their tight end Dawson Knox didn't do enough. What do you think of your coach in the closing minutes down by three going for it on fourth and one from the two? What do you think? You've got the chance to score the winning touchdown. Yeah. So he was going for the win, and this was uh, Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Bills. He's His team has the ball down at the one-and-a-half-yard line. You've got Josh Allen with an opportunity to take it in or at least get you a first down with enough time to score if he does get the first down. And he didn't get the first down. Would you rather kick the field goal and go to OT, tied at 34, be guaranteed of that, or go for the victory? I will never get mad at a coach who plays to win the game. You play to win the game. Yeah. And I know a lot of people might disagree with me, take the what seemingly is the easier route and then take your chances in overtime, I will never get mad at someone for playing to win the game. I just think in that situation, because his team is so much better than Tennessee's, shouldn't have been 34-31 Tennessee at that point. I would have preferred that he take his chance in overtime. And I believe Vrabel tried that with a two-point conversion a few years ago in London in a game against the Chargers, and they missed on the two-point conversion. So it's happened to Tennessee before, Mm. and now it happens for Tennessee. And a great defensive play. I guess one of the things was that McDermott was thinking was, 
like I just said, Tennessee isn't that their defense isn't that good. So right. you feel like Josh Allen's going to be able to pick up a yard against them. You like your your chances in that position. Yeah, but because it didn't work, I say kick the field goal. <laughs> For sure. Um, can I present to you some Jordan Cairo nicknames coming through on the text line? Okay, I like them. Yeah. Tell me if you like any of these. Mediterranean monster. Jordan Cairo is the Euro hero. <laughs> this, this is good. The sleek Greek. Or how about this one? Just Jordan Euro instead of Jordan Cairo, Ooh, Jordan, Jordan Euro. Jordan Euro. Some of these are good, but give us some more options. I kind of like the sleek Greek and not the Greek freak, the sleek Greek. The sleek Greek. Very nice. Yeah. Hey, well done. Also, a lot of suggestions ran me on the text line for places where you can get Greek desserts that are not baklava. Okay. Uh, there's some Greek donuts on the hill. Okay. I'll, I'll float you those during the break. So there's some options out there for All right. you. All right. I like to hear this. <laughs> People got your back. Yeah, that, that's good. I guess you do occasionally see fat Greek people, right? Even though the Greek diet, the Mediterranean diet, is really good and good for you, but they have to eat dessert sometimes. Yeah, you got to have dessert. I, I wonder if, first of all, do they have Halloween in Greece? And Stand second of all, do they, do they have uh, Reese's pumpkins in Greece? Because Reese's pumpkins are kind of like the Reese's Christmas trees. They're kind of a game changer. And the Greek Reese's pumpkin would turn me on. I would like that. Okay. Greek people don't actually, per Google, mm-hmm. Greek people don't actually celebrate Halloween. The Halloween parties that take place in Greece are mostly geared towards expats and tourists. However, Greeks do have a festival known as Apocris that take place during Carnival that's often referred to as the Greek Halloween. Okay, so they're, therefore, if it is the Greek Halloween, then we can have Greek Reese's pumpkins, which is really all that matters. What makes them Greek? They're in Greece. (laughs) (laughs) That's Michelle. I'm Randy. We're off and running here on 101 ESPN. Former Cardinal skipper Mike Schiltz provided a message to the media yesterday for you, the fans, and we'll break it down for you next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Jordan Cairo playing very well because of a, uh, a a lot of Greek food that mom provided during the course of the offseason. And Michelle has a great nickname for Jordan Cairo. We asked the BLIS, the best listeners in sports, to help us crowdsource some nicknames. We had some good ones. Uh, Zeus, because you could yell Zeus is loose. The saucy Greek. <laughs> Jordan Euro, the Mediterranean monster. I like this one, the Athens assassin. But I think <laughs> oh. the best one comes from the 618, and I just reached out to that person to get their name so we can give them credit, but this is from the 618. Why not just call him Grease Lightning? It's pretty fantastic. Grease Lightning. I think that is perfect. Yeah. Because he's got the skill, the speed. Lightning quick. And his shot is lightning. Grease Lightning. Done. Done and done. Thank you, 618. It's Jeff from the 618. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff, you're brilliant. Former Cardinal manager Mike Schilt held a Zoom conference yesterday. You heard it here on 101 ESPN. You heard it live. And if you didn't hear it, one of the things that he did was thank the Cardinal organization for what it provided him. Also, I'd like to thank the organization for the opportunity to coach and manage at the major league level, starting with the DeWitt family and the ownership group, along with Mo and his front office staff. I will always be very, very appreciative of your trust in me. I'm also very grateful for Mike Matheny allowing me the opportunity to be on his staff and giving me a chance at the major league level to start that chapter of my career. 
Speaking of staffs, it's a wonderful opportunity to thank the staff I've been blessed to compete with over the last three and a half seasons. One of the one of the unbelievable, amazing things about this staff was the fact that how long we were able to cut our teeth and strive together. Pop, Gertie, Jeff, Ollie, Jabelle, and Willie, I got the privilege of working with you in the minor league system before we got the chance to work together at the big league level. I was fortunate to, enough to coach and manage Ollie, KT, and Packy in the minor leagues, and they were a huge asset for what we were able to accomplish at the big league level, especially Ollie, who has my deepest and most trusted respect. Had the privilege and, uh, and of working with uh, a stud of a baseball man and pitching coach in Mike Maddox and a wealth of baseball wisdom in Chad Blair, head of our video department. Also, Stubby Clab, Dusty Blake, and Jamie Pogue whose hard work and loyalty I'm grateful for. Thanks all of you for everything you did and being all in for our team and our organization. Also, my appreciation for the medical performance, kitchen, clubhouse, and traveling staff, as they did an amazing job to serve our players and staff. You guys are all first class. No surprise that he thanked the DeWitt family and John Mozeliak for giving him the opportunity. And you would expect Mike Schilt to deliver the, his message with a, a high level of class, and he did. Yeah, he took the high road here. Uh, didn't surprise me. We've seen Mike Schultz, even in difficult situations before, always take the high road. He's not someone that we thought would air anything out. I was hoping that maybe we would get a little bit more mm-hmm. of, a, of a glimpse into what happened or what led to this decision being made for Mike Schultz, but it did not surprise me that you got nothing but class and respectful words and a very heartfelt statement out of Mike Schultz yesterday. And it comes at the conclusion of 18 seasons in the organization. So I did my very every turn to be a, care, a good caretaker of the Cardinals' legacy. I invest my heart, soul, and most of my professional career in helping maintain and be a part of being an organization that I cared more about than I cared about my own career. I was taught not to talk out of school. And while clearly there were differences that led to this parting of ways, out of respect for the organization, the people that run it, I can only express my gratitude and all the all those philosophies that were shared over the many years, most of which together um, allowed us to part ways as, as professional friends. And um, that will be left said. And what, what differences there were, um, will be left to remain unsaid publicly by me. I respect and hope that any rumors or or, um, window that are out there can be left to just let's move forward and let's take care of uh, maintaining the integrity of the future of the organization. One thing is very clear after yesterday, Mike Schilt loves and reveres the Cardinals organization. Mm -hmm. When you say after you've been fired from your dream job that you cared more about the Cardinals organization than you care about your own career, you are dedicated to this organization, not just the time you've put in 18 years. Clearly, he cared so much about the tradition of this club. It meant something to him to put on that uniform and wear the birds on the bat. And when you ex- hear him expressing the gratitude for the opportunity to even be a part of this and to be able to have this job, if you're John Mozeliak and Mr. DeWitt, 
you better think about that when you're making your next hire, because even though there was a difference in philosophy at the root of it, those philosophical differences, because Mike Schilt cared. He cared so much about the the wins and the losses and the success of his organization that he felt that he was going to push for what he thought was best for the team. And I'm sure whoever they hire will probably have a tie to the Cardinals. It's probably somebody that's already in house that, that understands the importance of this organization. But for a team and a club that un, that knows how important the history is and what it means to this community. You're never going to have somebody that gets that as much as Mike Schilt did. One troubling aspect of this for me is that George Kissel had a dozen of those little leather bound books with the Cardinal way with mm-hmm. the, the foundation of the fundamentals printed. And Mike Schilt has one of those. I don't know that anybody else in the Cardinal organization now has one of those. And clearly, his is going somewhere else. George Kissel's knowledge and Mike Schilt's knowledge is going somewhere else. Joe Torre took it to the Yankees. Tony Larusa has taken it to the White Sox. And you wonder if what Branch Rickey started for the Cardinals, a franchise that is based in its foundation is in playing good fundamental baseball pitching well running being aggressive fielding well I I wonder if that is going to remain a cardinal staple because they don't have that guy there are no ties left to George Kissel in this organization it seems like that's not something that they're valuing as much anymore or they're valuing other things more than the George Kissel George Kissel traditions and things that he wanted to implement into this organization, because that's one thing I said on Friday, Randy, you were out when we were talking about this with, with Danny Mac is Mike Schilt has the record. He's been to the postseason. He's a winning manager. He seemingly has good relationships with his players. That's going to make him a desirable candidate for a lot of ball clubs. But in addition to that, if I'm a team that's looking for a strong foundation, I'm looking at somebody like Mike Schilt, who has the tutelage and more importantly, has been a part of one of the crown jewel franchises that has had consistent success for a long time. I want him to be in my organization and say, what allowed the Cardinals to be so successful help bring it here if you're going to be a franchise that isn't one of the big spenders and you want to find a way to win like tampa bay does the best way to do it is to teach your lower priced players and not that the cardinals are loaded with lower priced players but they do have a young outfield they do have a couple of young infielders middle infielders the best way for those franchises to win is to allow, to allow the other team to lose, to not make mistakes, because inevitably, the way baseball is now, that other team is going to make a mistake to lose the game. And if you play good, clean baseball, you're going to wind up at the top of the standings. So that's one of the reasons that the Cardinals did, despite all their injuries this year. And it's kind of a shame that if he goes to, let's just presume that he winds up as the manager of the Padres, and those young players, and even though Fernando Tatis Jr. is high priced he's still very young if he teaches those guys how to play Mm -hmm. look out look out dodgers look out giants look out everybody in the national league and that's exactly what he'll do that's what he did with the cardinals fundamentals is important defense is important the little nuances that you might think don't make that big of a difference mike schilt hammers that in and he's going to make sure that his team is buttoned up in every aspect from a foundation from a fundamental standpoint so where does mike schilt go from here Speaking of the future, I'm at Batiste with the 
way I've left the players and the staff in a very positive position. I'm excited for the team in 2012. As for me, I look forward to uh, connecting with my family and growing new relationships that we have. And I definitely look forward to the next opportunity in baseball, which I'm sure will be many, and help grow the players and our great game that we all love dearly. So I would defer to um, everything I've just said. I haven't had a great wrap-up statement here um, other than to thank you, love you, and appreciate all of you. Um, and let's move forward and let's continue to grow together. And uh, I wish everyone on this call all the best. Thankful for the support. God bless. First class. All the way. Yeah. And we get a text here from the 314. I agree with the move to move on because for some reason, Schild couldn't get his teams to perform in the playoffs, and we've seen it three years in a row. And while you are not wrong in that he couldn't get his team to perform in the playoffs, there are two parts of this that I'm going to look at. Number one, the team was in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And number two, when you look at why the Cardinals didn't win in the playoffs, much of it was out of the hands of managers. When you don't hit, and I don't think a manager makes a team hit. I really don't. When you don't hit against the world champion nationals who had Scherzer and Strasburg and at that time uh, the, the other right-hander, Anibal Sanchez, when you don't hit against them, it's not a disaster. The Dodgers didn't that year either. And in the World Series, Houston didn't either, even though they had a little extra help. So... I don't blame him for not hitting in 2019 or this year for going whatever it was for 11 for 11 with runners in scoring position against the Dodgers. I don't blame him for that. And I'm more inclined to look at the 162 game season and appreciate the fact that they were in the playoffs to not be able to perform there. A lot of people are still going to point to the, the Reyes move. And say this is an example of Mike Schilt making a decision that might have cost the Cardinals uh, a chance to advance in the postseason. But I'm with you. That's one move that happened in the game. He's not in the batter's box. He's not going 0 for 11 with runners in Mm -hmm. scoring position. And I think when you look at 2020 specifically and everything that Cardinals team went through and the fact that Mike Schilt had his team in the playoffs, it's pretty impressive, pretty impressive. And in in 2019, that offense was really stagnant. That was really a tough position to be in. But the Cardinals were still in the in the NLCS. It's it's kind of a catch 22. There's there are certain things that you give him credit for and you give the club credit for while also still wanting more. And Michelle, going through it is going to be positive for him. So many managers, more uh, until the last five years, but so many managers have had a high level of success in their second job. Gabe Kapler evidently learned a lot in his first job with Philadelphia, and that has helped him succeed uh, with, with San Francisco. And there are a ton of examples of managers that have succeeded in their second stop. And I would not be surprised if Mike Schilt wound up being another one of those guys. I wonder what the reaction is around baseball. I wonder what other front offices are saying about this move. I wonder if front offices are saying the same thing that we are. Mike Schilt's out on the market. He's got one of those books. Let's get let's get him in here. I want to know what has made the Cardinals so successful. I want somebody who has the teachings of George Kissel. I want somebody that is going to be able to implement into our organization what has worked for the Cardinals for so long. Let's get those trade secrets in our doors. And I wonder if there is a perception around baseball that if if there are going to be philosophical differences, 
now because it's happened multiple times with John Mosaylock, if people are more inclined to believe that philosophical differences are an issue with management rather than the manager. Yeah. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, we're going to spin it forward. Our top three managerial candidates each for the Cardinals on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Character and Smallman ready to spin it forward on the Cardinal managerial front on 101 ESPN. And we're going to give you some ideas with our top three managers each. It's time for Randy's number three. All right, Michelle, you want a guy that's won? Check. A couple of championships in the minors. You want a guy that the players know? Check. Manage many of them in the minors. Has been around them as a coach. You want a guy that brings the gravitas of having played in the majors? Check. You want a guy that knows exactly what John Mosaylock and Bill DeWitt want from an organizational standpoint? Check. And you want a guy that preserves some continuity and is willing to accept the coaching staff as it is? Apparently. Check. You're talking about my number three, Stubby Clap. Mm, you might see him make an appearance on my list, okay, too. Good. But now it's time for Michelle's number three. OK, you want someone that has one check. You want someone that's tied to the organization check. You want someone who has cut their teeth and is seemingly positioned well to take this next step into a managerial position. Check. You want someone who has good relationships with players within the organization, including some current members. Check. And you want someone who understands the importance of Cardinal Baseball. Also check. I just stole your check bit there. I'm talking about Skip Schumacher, who is my number three, currently the Padres associate manager. He's one here. He understands the tradition and uh, the pressure that comes with being the manager here in St. Louis. He um, obviously has a great rapport with a lot of the players. He's played with some of the guys who are still currently on this team. And I imagine that they would have great respect for Skip if he were to assume that position. And he's been with the Padres. So he's been with an organization that's had some success. He's really been able to cut his teeth as a bench coach and now as an, as the associate manager. And I think it would be a nice little homecoming to ski, see Skip Schumacher be named the next Cardinals manager. All right. Good one, Michelle. Randy's number two. Michelle, the Cardinals do need a manager that thrives in an analytic world and has won with them. Yes, he does have some emotion, that, but that would be welcome. He's worked with a variety of people. He knows how to agree with the front office about analytics, and he's been in the dugout as a player and coach and would be a fan favorite until he makes his first pitching change. <laughs> Mo knows him and by all accounts loves him, and so does ownership. And again, your three is my number two, Skip Schumacher. I think we're going to have a lot of the same names on this list. Yeah. And by the way, am I wrong in saying that he would be a fan favorite until he makes his first pitching change? Because that's going to be any manager. Any manager, right. He doesn't know how to handle a bullpen. (laughs) But that's part of the fun of being a fan is you think no one can handle a bullpen. Exactly. Time for number two. Randy, your number three is my number two. The the one thing that we knew for sure and after John Mosaylock's presser, after announcing that the Cardinals were moving on from Mike Schilt, was that they want to take a hard look on some internal candidates and that they have some pretty good options. So I'm going with Stubby Clapp as my number two. You know that he's been with the organization for a long time. A lot of players know him. They respect him. They respect his demeanor. We know that he is really strong when it comes to the player development side 
side of things, which is something that is going to be very important moving forward. He actually won the George Kissel Award for Excellence in Player Development back in 2017. And he is someone that I think could make this jump to the manager pretty seamlessly because he's been with the organization for so long. He's a great candidate. All right, it's time for Randy's number one. And Michelle, after much reflection on your opinions of yesterday, I thought about this, and we know the Cardinals are looking for someone, obviously, that shares the same philosophy as they do because they don't want differences in philosophy. Someone familiar with their tradition, someone with leadership ability in the clubhouse who doesn't mind being told what to do while in his office. Someone that commands the respect of people like Yadier Molina and Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. As we noted, a manager with previous experience isn't a prerequisite anymore because you don't have the DH. It's really not a hard job, and the front office is going to tell you what your lineup is anyway. (laughs) The one guy that has all those qualities, the knowledge of the Cardinal way, a philosophy in line with Mo. He's also got leadership ability downstairs and pliability upstairs. The commands respect in the locker room is... Matt Holiday. Oh, not where I thought you were going with this. Matt Holiday. He's the guy. If, if he walks into that locker room, Arenado obviously loves him. Sure. Yachty loves him. Sure. Wayno loves Trevor him. Trevor Story's going to love him, too. No doubt about it. <laughs> when he's here. And he's a guy that, because he hasn't managed before, I would guess, much like Matheny at the major league level, Schiltz at the major league level, he'll be pliable for the people above him, but will be able to command respect and show leadership downstairs in the clubhouse, which is a tough that's a tough line to, to straddle, wouldn't you think? Because yeah, if, if, sure. the, if the front office is telling you, okay, here's the way things are going to be, but you still have to command the respect of the locker room, that's a hard thing. Well, he's earned the respect of that locker room because of his playing career. He would immediately command respect from the players. Most of them know him, and a lot of them talk to him mm-hmm. regularly. The only thing with Matt Holiday, and I think he would be an unbelievable candidate for this job. I would love to see Matt Holiday be the next manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. Is this is someone that has played and has been in those positions, and I, while I do think he would be pliable, I don't think he's a pushover at all. No. And I think the front office is looking for somebody that is going to be completely in lockstep with them 100%. And I I see Matt Holiday as the type that would push back if he didn't agree with certain things. And th- this is not a reflection on Holiday or the other guys. But Matt Holiday made $120 million from the Cardinals, right? He doesn't need anybody yelling at him about philosophy. Stubby clapping Oliver Marmol are not in that same boat financially. They need the job. That's one thing about Matt. Even though he's the nicest guy in the world, if something goes wrong, he can say, I don't need to deal with this and move on, right? No, he doesn't need the headache. No, he doesn't. But he's a baseball guy through and through. He's a coach. He would he would be a great next manager for the St. Louis Cardinals. But one thing that I keep thinking about, Randy, is one thing that we not you and I, but a lot of fans complained about when it came to Mike Schilt was his demeanor, that he was almost Mm -hmm. too even keel, that he was almost too nice and too positive at times. So if Mike Schilt pushed back too much for this front office Mm -hmm. and this Cardinals organization, they need someone that's a lesser version of Mike Schilt. (laughs) Think about that for a second. Matt Holliday played for Tony La Russa. He's got that fire and that, that intensity. And 
the front office might be looking for that and and they might want someone that just from an analytics perspective is on the same page as them 100%. They're going to find somebody that they know is going to go down the path that they want them to go down. But I keep thinking if Mike Schiltz push back too much for mm-hmm. you, then you want someone that's going to push back 0% of the time. So here's Michelle's number one. And I'm not suggesting that this person would do that, but this person uh, that's number one on my list understands the assignment. This is somebody that's already been in-house. This is somebody who had a front row seat to what went wrong with Mike Schilt and Sean Mosellock behind closed doors. This is someone who understands where the differences were, the philosophical differences, and he's someone that is very valued within the organization. Mike Schilt spoke about him yesterday and has this person has been very much praised for their work within the Cardinals organization. They know the players. They know the, the full philosophy that the Cardinals organization wants to take and has a lot of respect in and out of the clubhouse. If this person is not the next manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, why, widely reported that they're probably going to be a manager elsewhere. And I'm talking about Ali Marmol as my number one. Here we go. Ali Marmol. So there you have it, each of our top three. I like that call. I, th- I think Arli- Ali Marmol He's great. is a really good fit for what the Cardinals have. And, oh, by the way, I do think that it would be a good idea for this organization to have a minority in a leadership role. And having a Hispanic in a leadership role for the Cardinals, when you look at their history and you look at where we are in 2021, I believe that would be a positive move on the part of the franchise. Couldn't agree with you more. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and those are our top three. Coming up next, get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. It's time for Take It or Leave It on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Time for Take It or Leave It on 101 ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker, Emily Butcher with you. And the text line is open. The Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Michelle, as you know, the Mets have a general manager's opening. They have been turned down so far by Theo Epstein and by Billy Bean and by Doug Melvin. And the Milwaukee Brewers have said, no, you can't talk to David Stearns, our general manager. So take it or leave it. The next move for Sandy Alderson, the president of baseball operations for the Mets, should be to former Major League Manager Lou Brown. Dire world. Oh, look. This is Charlie Donovan with the Cleveland Indians. How would you like to manage the Indians this year? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? This is a chance to manage in the big leagues. Let me think it over, will you, Charlie? I got a guy on the other line about some white walls. I'll talk to you later. Take it or leave it. Lou Brown for GM of the Mets. I think I have to take it. Yeah. He's already been in Major League Baseball. One. Took over a Moribund franchise. He's got the pedigree. Yeah, he does. (laughs) For the Mets, I mean, nobody else wants the job. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Let me see what else I have going on. (laughs) Got a guy in the other line about some white walls. (laughs) (laughs) So Dorian Boyland, by the way, is the gentleman that... uh, most recently turned down the Mets job. Uh, he, former pirate player back in the 80s says he has no interest in the job. He's happy to run his car dealership. 
<laughs> Dorian Boylan yeah. would rather run a car dealership <laughs> than be the GM of the Mets. Wow. <laughs> We need to, during the break, look up the New York Daily News and the New York Post to see what they're saying about that, because I cannot imagine that that went over well in New York. Well, the name that has come up, not surprisingly, is Jeff Luno, but the New York papers are saying no, no, not Jeff Luno. But that might be the only guy that'll take the gig. Even Dorian Boyland isn't taking the gig. I understand why you would be averse to Jeff Luno. He's... Tainted. He's mm-hmm. there's a lot of people within baseball that are not Jeff Lunau fans. But say what you want about him. The guy knows how to win. He sure does. And he's yeah. hungry and is desperate to get back in and prove yeah. himself. And if you're the Mets, you're in you're in a desperate place. Mm-hmm. So why not partner with the desperate guy? And when Dorian Boylan is saying, I'm good, I'm gonna run my car dealerships. Yeah. Yeah, that should be the end of the line for you. That's wh- that's when you're if, you're, if you're Steve Cohen, you just call up and say to Jeff Luno, uh, hey, Jeff, we got an opening. You want it? And this is a, a franchise that is not immune or unfamiliar with controversies or with a headline. I mean, right. you, you have your own players giving the thumbs down to their fans during the season. If that blows over, so will the Jeff Luno hire. Hey. Guess what? If he comes in and he starts making some moves and you guys start winning, you'll look like the smart guy that brought him back to baseball. Alex Cora is two wins away from going to the World Series. He was suspended, right? Right. A.J. Hinch did a great job. Luno's former manager did a great job with the Tigers this year. If the managers can come back, why not the GM? Who is actually further away from the scandal than those guys were? I... I think a lot of people don't want him to come back because they just don't like him. Right. That he's an unlikable yeah. figure. There's or at no least doubt from what that. I've read, yeah. it seems like a lot of people in right. baseball, even before the scandal, just were not fans from a personality standpoint. Kind of a Richard. Of Jeff Luna. Yeah, no but doubt. he knew what he was doing. So, Randy Titans wide receiver AJ Brown, he was on the team's injury report Sunday with an illness. He explained what, what happened last night after Tennessee won 34 to 31 over the Bills. He said it was food poisoning, and he said after the game, I'm sorry, Chipotle, but Chipotle got me. Mm. Take it or leave it. This is a great marketing opportunity for Qdoba. Oh, I'll have to take that. Yes, no doubt about it. Yeah, Qdoba has to say, hey, AJ Brown's had no problem with us. That's right. Hey, NFL players. Hey, athletes. Yeah. If you need a good pregame meal, come to us, not Chipotle. And they have to have him doing spots, right? Yes. Now, of the three, and I think we may have had this discussion in the past, Chipotle, very strong. Qdoba, very strong. Moe's, very strong. Do you have a favorite from among those three very similar eateries? I'm a Chipotle girl. Oh, yeah? Okay. Even even though A.J. Brown did not have great luck with Chipotle, I always have. We don't have a Moe's around me anymore. We used to have one five minutes away. It's gone now. My number one is Moe's. And actually, my number two is Qdoba. And even though my number three is Chipotle, I love Chipotle. Do you ever had an, an experience with food? That even though it's delicious, you can never look at it the same and it becomes unappealing to you? I don't have that problem, but my wife does, yes. So when I was at ESPN, sometimes when I would work later at night, people would eat dinner in the studio. And one time someone was a repeat offender with this, would go out and get Moe's off campus and eat it in the studio. And you would go in the studio and there would be congealed Nacho Moe's cheese on the desk and the entire 
replaced with smell like day old Moe's. Yeah. So even though Moe's is delicious because of the behavior of someone, because I had to wipe off day old congealed Moe's from that. the desk, I just can never put it number one. And it's not Moe's fault. Yeah. It's someone else's fault. But it's uh, just what's going to be the way, you know, I'm just going to have to go Chipotle or Qdoba before Moe's. I'm sorry. I feel that way. Uh, Emily, how about you? Do you have a number one among those three? Probably Qdoba. Okay. Qdoba right across the street. They listen all the time, too. Shout out Qdoba. They're all yeah. great. Get in yeah, touch with AJ Brown. Yeah. <laughs> From the 314, take it or leave it, Schulte wins a World Series ring as a manager before the Cardinals win number 12. If um, he's with the Padres? Well, they're, you know they're going to go out and get the left-hander if they need one. They will. They're going to spend. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll take it. I'm going to leave it because the Cardinals are going to win the World Series next year. So Okay. I, I going to beat him to the punch. I hope that the dismissal of Mike Schilt is akin to the dismissal of Bo, Buck Showalter, both with the Yankees and the Diamondbacks, where they won the World Series the next year. I hope it's akin to the Blues getting rid of Mike Yo, even though that was in mm-hmm. season. A, a nice enough guy, probably wasn't given enough time, but it just was not working. Mm-hmm. They go out, they get Craig Bruby. He's the he's the magic touch that allows the Blues to go on to win. I'm going to look at it like that. We're going to be positive. And it's Yachty and Bueno's last season. They have to win the World Series Good next point. year. Yeah. You know, come on. It's a law of averages. From the 314, take it or leave it. Dusty Baker gets an interview if he wants it. Here, I'm going to leave that. I'll leave that too. From the 314, take it or leave it. When Sonny comes back, the Blues have the best forward group in the NHL. Yeah, I'll, uh, well, Tampa Bay's pretty darn good, but they've lost guys in free agency. And so I'm Sonny's gonna the engine. That. I'm going to take that. One of the things, Michelle, about my uh, non sleeping Blues roster uh, review last night, think about this of the top. 12 forwards, you have eight of them. You have O'Reilly and Perron. You have Shen and Tarasenko. Mm-hmm. You have Thomas and Bozak. And then you have Barbie and Sonny. So you'll have eight of the top 12 forwards back from your Stanley Cup championship team. Now, when you were doing the counting of Blues that have won the Cup, mm-hmm. they're still with the team. Did you eventually fall asleep? Did it help you? It did, yeah. I oh, did good. eventually okay. fall asleep. Nice, all right. When, once I figured out, what, oh man, why can't I make these numbers work? And Oh, Jake Allen! That's uh, Jake the Snake, yeah. yeah. From the 636, take it or leave it, Denver as a city is better than Chicago as a city overall. Ooh. I'm going to leave that. Both are great. Both are fantastic. But the change and Denver's climate is sensational. Mm-hmm. To me, the game changer is Michigan Avenue and that general vicinity. See, I'm not really a Mi- Michigan Avenue girl, especially now. Most people are shopping online. You don't need the, the glitz and the but glam the restaurants of, of Michigan Avenue. If you go to Michigan Avenue today and walk up and down and experience the energy of Michigan Avenue, it's it's pretty cool. Not that Lodo is not great, mm-hmm. but it's just it's a different vibe. I think both are excellent. You can't really go wrong with Chicago or Denver. And immediately I thought I was going to lean Denver because... Chicago, you really only get, like, maybe, if you're lucky, 40 great days a year from Mm -hmm. a weather standpoint. But 
I just, I think you've got the beach in the summer. You can take a boat out. The amount of things you can do in Chicago, and you can do a lot in Denver too, but I think I'm going to lean Chicago. I'm going to pick Chicago over Denver. And maybe it's my, my Midwestern heart. Yeah. Now, if you don't want to get murdered, Denver's probably better. Right? Chicago has a lot of murders. It's just a fact. I don't think we should be talking about cities oh. and their murder rates, okay? No. <laughs> I don't think we should be I'm, talking I'm, about crime. I'm, I'm just doing a one versus one here. I mean... It's crime everywhere, Randy. Yeah, There's crime everywhere. But in that regard, the city of St. Louis, I mean, we've got t-shirts. Also, if you're going to Chicago, yes, people in Denver like to drink, but a lot of people are, you know, Rado. They talk about Rado. They're, mm-hmm. they're chill, bruh. Let's go snowboarding, whatever. If you go to Chicago, people are going to be drinking beer. They're going to be watching sports. They're likely want to gonna want to eat carbs those are our people those are our people our people one more quick take it or leave it 10 years from today okay october 19th 2031 yes not only do you have the arlington heights chicago bears but you have an nfl team playing in soldier field i'm gonna leave it you have two teams in in the chicago metro you're gonna gonna leave it i'm gonna leave it I think that they'll expand to another market before they'll put two teams in chicago chicago bills nah no Chicago Bills. Nah. That just happened. (laughs) Thanks, uh, Emily. Thank you. And thanks for your texts. Coming up, the Blues knocked off the Coyotes 7-4 last night. And it wasn't just that they won, but it was who provided the victory. Next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Now Cairo brings it in, toe drags, in, shoots, score! The Blues are lighting the lamp. They're going to need to change the ball behind Hutton. The Blues scoring five goals in five minutes last night. Jordan Cairo with a pair. He had a four-point night. Michelle, he has six points in two games for the Blues. He's turning in a Gretzky-esque performance is Grease Lightning. <laughs> Grease Lightning has really turned it on for the Blues. It's so great to see so many of these young Blues players step up early. Last night it was Cairo, Costin, Costin, Cairo. It's going to be an important component of this team this this season, and it's great to see that it's already there so early on, that it's already clicking for these young players. And last night, the Cardinals scratched James Neal to put Costin into the lineup. The Blues. Coach, yeah. Who'd I say? Cardinals. Cardinals. Uh, yeah, well, Costin could play for both. He really could. One of those two. Yeah. So Costin gets his opportunity in the lineup and scores a <laughs> pair of goals within a minute of each other at the 1440 mark of the second and then at the 1527 mark of the second. And we've heard for years about his ability. As a matter of fact, even when he was drafted, they said that a shoulder injury prevented him from being a top 10 pick in the entire draft. And then last year he goes to the KHL and by all accounts performed pretty well. And hopefully this is a sign of things to come because it wasn't just the two goals, but it, it was the way he played. He got in there on the four check. He was pretty aggressive. And especially with Bushnevich headbutting. Uh, the opposition last night and probably getting a suspension. You'll need both Neil and Costin for the next few games. How long do you think that suspension will be? I would say probably a two-gamer. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. You just can't do that. I appreciate the toughness. I appreciate you wanting to make a statement, but headbutting and putting your team at a deficit, not great. There's a thin line between that. Yeah. And again, Jordan Bennington was excellent for the Blues. He did allow the four goals on 26 shots, but there were some opportunities that the Coyotes had last night that 
on most goalies, they would have scored, and Bennington came up with big saves, especially in the second period. So no questions about Jordan Bennington early on? I don't have questions about him. I, I think it's I fair. If, if you don't watch the games and you just see the raw stats and you say, okay, he, he allowed four on 26, I can see how you can say that that's an issue. But big picture, I'm not at all concerned. And the fact that the Blues did have the 6-2 to lead after two, I... I believe they kind of let their foot off the gas there in the third period when Fisher and Boyd scored for Arizona. And he's made some great saves so far this season, but we've gotten some texts to the Air Comfort Service text line 6578 over the past couple days wondering about Bennington letting in three in the first game and then four last night. Well, and the three, the last two came with an extra attacker that he didn't have a chance on. It wasn't his issue at all. It was just a situation where the Blues did not defend the empty net of Colorado very well. They never got the puck. Colorado had the puck the whole time, and he didn't have a chance on those. So those last two in Colorado, I completely throw out. And actually, the the last or the first two last night, Keller's goal, he didn't have a chance on. And then on the Krause goal, it was right from the slot. There was nobody between the shooter and the goalie. He didn't have a chance on that one either. That was something Jordan Bennington dealt with last season. I think a lot of times people, it, like you're saying, if they woke up, they they checked the score and they didn't watch the games. A lot of times Jordan Bennington was in a position where the defense in front of him put him in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. And that'll happen during the course of a season. You, you just can't do that on a regular basis. And he'll have to be at the top of his, of his game and the Golden Knights have lost Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone. So kind of like Colorado, they're going to be compromised from a talent standpoint when the Blues play there tomorrow night. But they still have a lot of really good players. And Bennington will have to be on top of his game in Vegas tomorrow. What did you think of the Coyote sweaters that they unveiled last night? Not a fan. Really? I no. thought they were very cool. I like the, throw, yeah. the throwback vibe. Yeah, I, I've never liked, I've never liked any Phoenix slash Arizona Coyotes sweaters. Ever? Just, no. I, I, I've never liked any of their logos. I'm just not a fan. Hmm. So, but I do like seeing the Blues wear the dark jersey on the road. I think that should be a staple in the NHL. I think they should go back to white at home so that when the Blackhawks come to town, you can see the Blackhawks red jersey. When Montreal comes to town, you can see their red. When the Avalanche come into town, you can see their, their slate blue. I, I like seeing the colors of the other teams rather than just white after white after white after white after white jersey every night. So that's where I am. Coming up next, Seth Wickersham of ESPN.com has a new book out. It's called It's Better to Be Feared. And Seth will join Michelle and Randy next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker, great to have you with us on 101 ESPN. And the most tied-in NFL reporter is Seth Wickersham. He is he has all the stories. And he's great to talk to. And he has a new book out called It's Better to Be Feared. It's about the New England Patriots. The book was released nationally October 12th, and you can get it anywhere. Books are sold. You can go to Amazon right now and get It's Better to Be Feared by Seth Wickersham, who joins us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101 ESPN in St. Louis. Seth, that's Michelle Smallman. This is Randy Carricker. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great, but I got to be honest, that was such a nice intro that I'm thinking maybe we should just end this thing now. Like, it, it can only go downhill for that, from that, you know? Uh, Seth, I hate, guys. I hate to push back, but I've had your book in my hands since Friday, and I haven't been able to put it down, so I know that the intro is just the beginning, because there's so many unbelievable stories and great details in the book, so I can't wait to talk to you about it. 
Thank you, guys. All right. Well, question number one that I had for you, Seth, and I've been I've been taking notes as I've been reading the book, and it seems like every page I have to stop and write something down because you have such great insight into the minds and the stories of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. But one thing that is kind of hard to believe right now because we know Tom Brady as the undisputed GOAT is that he wasn't always a great football player, and he wasn't always a player that people believed would be in this position. But one thing that I, I really kind of read throughout the book was that Tom Brady always knew that this was the end game, that he always believed in himself and always believed that this would be his future, even when other people didn't. He did. And, you know, I think you see that playing out even now. I mean, that's one of the, you know, in the book, I try to like get at, you know, what made these men great at this sport where greatness is inherently fleeting. And then also, you know, what were the costs of that greatness? And Brady's kind of interesting because he's always kind of had that rigorous self-belief that, you know, at times even his parents didn't have. And, you know, but I will say this is that, you know, there's, there's one moment in the book where he's in high school and he's throwing passes to receivers and, they're dropping the passes because it's really a windy day. And so he throws it harder and they can't hang on. He's really getting pissed and he's losing his patience. And his head coach stops him after practice. And he says, look, you've got to be more patient out there. And Brady didn't want to hear it. And he said, he, the, the coach kind of took a moment. He said, you are one of a kind. You're going to be playing in 10 years and none of these other people are. And it was one of those interesting moments because, of course, the, the story that Brady tells all the time is how he was always overlooked. And there's a lot of truth to that, but also his high school coach spotted just how talented he was even back then. And he was really one of the only other people who saw Brady's greatness besides him. And so I think that like, it's not only a story about how Brady sort of had that rigorous self-belief, but also how he was able to kind of almost define his own narrative as somebody who was always overlooked, even though there were moments when other people saw it too. Seth, as a head coach, did Bill Belichick always have that self-belief, even though Bill Parcells, as, as the book tells us, told him that he didn't think he'd ever be a successful head coach? Did, did Belichick believe? I mean, I think so, but it, it, that's hard to say. I mean, you know, when, when Belichick and Brady came into each other's lives in 2000, they both really knew the inherent fragility of what they were trying to do in their profession. I mean, Brady almost went undrafted. Belichick had his life annihilated when the Browns moved to Baltimore. And I think it was interesting because, you know, when you talk about Belichick, he obviously came to New England with a masterful plan about how to do things, but he also wanted to leave nothing to chance, having watched what, you know, being scarred after what happened to him in Cleveland. And I think that, like, when you look at some of the controversies over the years, like Spygate, like the things that St. Louis fans are very aware of, I think in a weird way you can trace those back to those things because not only did – you know, when Belichick came back to New England, not only did he have a plan in place that was way ahead of anybody else in the NFL, but he also was willing to cross certain lines because he knew that, you know, it's hard to win football games, to be honest with you. Seth, I, I have a friend who is a very good friend and worked for Bill Belichick as an assistant. And one of the lines that he told me a few years ago is when you walk in that facility, the line between right and wrong is blurred. Do you get that sense when in terms of the rules of the game? Do you get that sense? Well, I think that was true then. I mean, yeah, they were, you know, lifting play sheets out of the pills and locker rooms. And obviously Spygate was interesting. And I found, you know, one of the most interesting moments about Spygate of the chapters that I, that I spend on it is when it first broke. And that September of 2007, 
And Roger Goodell is trying to educate himself on seven years of illegal filming in a matter of of days. And, and he calls all these head coaches and GMs around the NFL and they just bury Belichick there. It's the height of piousness. And they're saying, you got to, you got to, you know, take this guy to the woodshed. He's dirty, blah, blah, blah. And then you have him calling Mike Shanahan, who at the time was probably, you know, the second big, big you know, second best head coach in the NFL head coach, of the Broncos. And Shanahan says, Roger, I'm mad that I didn't. I'm mad at myself that I didn't think of these cheating methods, and I would have done it in a New York minute because the punishment for it had never been spelled out because nobody had ever been punished for it. So if, if you don't know what the punishment is, why not try to push the envelope in every possible circumstance? And I found that really interesting because it was a window into the mindset of the best of the of the best, and it showed that the taping of the signals was important. Seth, as the Patriots dynasty began to unfold, Bill Belichick and a lot of members of his staff became obviously very valuable. And I thought it was notable in the book that you said or you revealed that once head or, uh, coordinators or different members of the coaching staff started to get picked off to go elsewhere, there was concern about a brain drain. But people said it's all Bill Belichick. Everything is running through Bill Belichick. And for somebody who was really protective of information and kind of deployed it on a need be basis and that was paranoid in a lot of ways, how did you get so much information about what was going on in Foxborough? Well, you know, I've just written about them a lot. And, you know, I I started writing about them in November of 2001. It was pretty shortly after I graduated from Mizzou. And I was sent out to Foxborough to interview, you know, this this young guy who was filling in admirably for Drew Bledsoe named Tom Brady. And he had, you know, a gray sweatsuit on and a backpack that was full of beer because he lost a Michigan-Michigan State bet. And he really... You know, we were basically the same age and, you know, we felt like we kind of had, you know, we were like the same species, like getting started in our careers. And, you know, I just had a lot of those moments over the years, um, you know, where I was with Brady at his house or at his Super Bowl party or at other parties with him. And I had had late night conversations with Belichick and I got to know a lot of people around them. And so, you know. I've just kept doing it. And I guess like, that's how I felt like I could write something like this. And, you know, and I also know their enemies around the league and the people that they had had problems with. I mean, like Mike Martz, I mean, when Spygate broke, you know, he felt like the Patriots might've taped their walkthrough. That's obviously, you know, something that's been, um, you know, investigated quite a bit. And he also felt wondered if they had taped his practices during the week. And he said something, I mean, when Spygate broke, he said, I'd like to hang Belichick by the, you know what, because he was so upset feeling like that, you know, what if he had been cheated out of a Super Bowl? Seth Wickersham is the author of It's Better to Be Feared. It's a great book about the New England Patriots. We haven't mentioned the name of Robert Kraft yet, Seth. How does he fit into this Brady-Belichick equation? Well, he was just masterful at keeping the band together as long as it did. And it doesn't mean that it didn't it wasn't easy managing those guys. I mean, Belichick and Brady are both very stubborn. They're type A personalities. They have got a lot of opinions. At one point in 2018, you know, after a year of just nonstop tension between Brady and Belichick in the building and a lot of 
worries about whether Brady was going to ask for his release from the team. And as a matter of fact, he kind of did. And Robert Kraft initially denied him getting released. That was in the spring of 2018 because he felt like they just traded Jimmy Garoppolo and invested again in Tom Brady, and he wasn't willing to let him out of his contract. Then the next day he comes back and he says, yeah, I will let you out. But Brady at that point didn't want out, and so he ended up staying in New England. But fast forward to that fall, um, Kraft is in a conference in uh, Aspen, one of these kind of rich guys conferences, and he's in the lobby of a hotel, and he goes, you know, I hate leaving a place like this. You have to leave some of those brilliant minds, and I have to go to Detroit to be with the biggest effing a-hole in my life, my head coach. (laughs) (laughs) Seth, this book is about the greatness of the Patriots, the greatness of Tom Brady, the greatness of Bill Belichick, and one of my biggest takeaways is, yes, you need the physical skills if you're Tom Brady, and yes, you need the football acumen and the access to resources if you're Bill Belichick, but this does not happen by accident. Greatness does not happen by accident. Both of these two guys are obsessive in their pursuit of greatness and in the fine-tuning of their craft. You talk about Bill Belichick having 19-hour days and Tom Brady getting busted on a late Friday night because he's at the facilities during the offseason. These are two people that were willing to win at whatever cost. Oh, no doubt. And I think that, you know, there's some funny moments in the book, like, you know, Belichick's assistant coach is rigging his computer with porn. So it was like screaming down the hallway and he couldn't figure out a way to to turn it off and ended up having to like unplug his computer because he was so angry about this. And then, you know, Tom Brady once bringing Giselle Bunchen's dog in a Louis Vuitton bag to the facility and asking for a place to hide the dog because he was so embarrassed that he had to watch the dog that day. But like, You know, one of the interesting things about Brady and Belichick is that, you know, we spend so much time talking about their differences, but they have some philosophical things that they're kind of weirdly aligned with. And one of those is like, these guys believe in what's next and like the, you know, the power and the potential of the next play, like nobody in NFL history, they are really optimists, which is kind of weird because, you know, Brady is kind of, they come in at a different angles. Brady is more kind of evangelical and, and almost kind of so earnest about it. And Belichick comes to it from kind of a pessimistic place where he has to figure out all the ways his team can lose before he can figure out a way for it to win. But you see that optimism play out on the, on international stages. I mean, Brady twice rallying the Patriots back from fourth quarter deficits, double digit fourth quarter deficits in the Super Bowl. you know, all of the historic goal line stands that Belichick's defenses have made, you know, going back to when he was with the Giants and they played in the Super Bowl against the Broncos, you know, these guys have an ability to flush what has happened and focus on what's next, like nobody else in the NFL. And I think that that's one of the most kind of interesting things to look at when you look at you know, you kind of break down the DNA of what made them great. Hey, Seth, one more thing about the book from me, and this is just a, an observation. I don't know if it's accurate, and maybe you can tell me if it is. But my, my perception of Brady was that he probably watched Peyton Manning and, and knew that Manning was able to coach the Broncos offense on Fridays and knew how much power he had in terms of putting together the game plan, whether it was under Gary Kubiak or uh, Jim Caldwell or whomever. Do you think Brady, when he left, wanted Wanted that ability to have a little bit more power than he was given under Bill Belichick? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that he wanted to have more insight over, you know, oversight, you know, influence in the organization. And, you know, even though I think Belichick 
gave him quite a bit, there was always going to be a ceiling on that because it was Bill Belichick's program and he had run it so well over the years. But I mean, just look at what it's like in Tampa. He's the, he's the quarterback. He's the de facto offensive coordinator. He's a pseudo personnel executive. And Alex Guerrero, his business partner with TV12, who, who Belichick once famously banned from the building, <laughs> is now not only has an office in the Tampa Bay Bucks building, but he got a Super Bowl ring. And so clearly things are, are different for Tom Brady. Um, you know, I think that he was tired of, of just feeling like he was an employee of taking these team-friendly you know, contracts with, with no say into how all of this you know, salary cap, cap flexibility was dispersed. And Seth, before we let you go, uh, we had the chance to sit together at one of the Rams hearings in regards, or the Rams NFL hearings in regards to the mm-hmm. St. Louis lawsuit. Uh, have you heard anything? Are NFL owners talking about this lawsuit now? And if so, what's being said? Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I've asked around about that. And to a certain extent, I think people look at it like it, this is Stan's problem to deal with. Remember in our you know, story that we did in, in after the, the Rams moved, I think it was February or March of 2016, um, we wrote about how he had signed an indemnification agreement, meaning that he picked up the cost for any legal costs for the league and the owners associated with this. And so I think that like right now what you see is most of the owners ignoring these you know, orders for discovery and kind of looking like this is Stan's problem that he's going to have to solve. I don't know on the league level um, you know, what they're talking about. But I know that during some of these, you know, NFL owners meetings that they do periodically, you know, the lawsuit just hasn't come up. And I find that kind of interesting because obviously, obviously St. Louis has a formidable team. And one of the most interesting theories I saw, I think it was by Mike Florio, was the suggestion that maybe St. Louis could get an NFL team as part of a settlement. I was curious, like, what do you guys think about that? I mean, like, would St. Louis want another NFL team? Would the public pay for a stadium? I thought that was a really interesting, you know, kind of theory that he put out there, and I was curious, like, does St. Louis even want an NFL team after two of them left? Well, definitively, there's no way public money would go toward a stadium (laughs) or a practice facility. The league would have to finance that. And what I've heard in talking to NFL sources is that that's a precedent that NFL owners do not want to set in in building stadiums (laughs) for a city. And I can also tell you reasonably definitively that if – the mayor of St. Louis, Tashara Jones, is offered that settlement, and she's one of the plaintiffs, that she would turn it down immediately, that there would not even be a question about it. Mm. So it's now a lot can happen between now and the start of a trial in January. But right now, there doesn't seem to be an appetite among leadership and fans are different. Seth, as you know, the, the mm-hmm. fans would love to have a team here. But among the corporate and political leadership of St. Louis, there is not interest right now. Yeah, and I just remember, you know, I went to Mizzou, and and you know, I covered, you know, some of those those Rams teams around the time that I graduated, um, you know, and the it's amazing how loud the dome was and how it was such a formidable and difficult place to play, and I feel like that, it, you know, the town kind of got trashed as as being, you know, fans not as being into the NFL as other cities only after the team was so bad for so long. You know, I I felt like that when you know when the Rams were good, that place was as hard of, to play as any place in the NFL. Yeah, it, it was. 
fun to be there too. Seth, you, the work that you do is phenomenal. Nobody else gets the insight and the, uh, the the anecdotes that you do. And the book is fantastic. The the name of the book it's better to be feared about the Patriots dynasty. And uh, Michelle's reading it now. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Hey, thank you guys. It's always great to join you. All right, Th- Seth. Thanks, Seth. And we'll see you in January, maybe. Sounds good. <laughs> Take care. That is Seth Wickersham, ESPN.com, with us on 101 ESPN. I know a lot of people in St. Louis, not Patriots fans. If you're a sports fan, you need to read this book. And it's access that you just don't get because, as you mentioned, Bill Belichick is so secretive and so protective of everything that happens within that building. The idea that those sorts of notes are getting out is sensational. Yeah, the quotes that he gets, the stories, the behind-the-scenes access, it's unprecedented for this dynasty but if you're a sports fan you like greatness and this is a peek into the minds of two of the greatest people that we'll see in our lifetime in regards to sports and a behind the scenes look at the building of and fall of a dynasty and we're never going to see that happen again in the nfl ever coming up next on 101 espn we've got another edition of the fight we're right back to the character and smallman podcast on 101 espn <laughs> Smallman here on 101 ESPN, and it's time for the fight. Joey is going to take on Randy in a sports trivia competition this morning. How you doing, Joey? I'm good, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Are you ready to take on Randy? I'm ready. All right, here. Let's jump right in. Question number one. Happy 35th birthday to former Cardinal and World Series champion Daniel Descalso. After five seasons with the Cardinals, Descalso entered free agency in 2014 and ultimately signed with which team? Was it the Chicago Cubs, the Colorado Rockies, or the Arizona Diamondbacks? I believe it was the Rockies because I know he ended his career with the Cubs, so I'm going to go with the Rockies. On this day in 2006, the Cardinals won the pennant after Adam Wainwright struck out which Met? Carlos Beltran, David Wright, or Carlos Delgado? Carlos Beltran. I would hope you get that one right, Joey. Kind of an (laughs) iconic moment. All right, question number three. Who stepped in as Blue's interim coach after Mike Keenan was fired in 1997? Was it Jimmy Roberts, Joel Quinville, or Mike Kitchen? I'm going to go with Joel Quinville since I know he was a former Blues coach. And on this day in 2002, a 16-year-old Wayne Rooney scored his first Premier League goal. Which MLS team did Rooney play for when he came to the U.S. near the end of his playing career? Was it D.C. United, L.A. Galaxy, or Sporting KC? Let's go with the Galaxy. Okay, checking our score. Randy's on his way in. Joey, tell me a little bit about you. Where are you from? Uh, Springfield, Illinois, uh, currently uh, at work at the Secretary of State's office. Um, listen to you guys every day. It gets me through the work day. Awesome. Well, thank you, Joey. Thanks for streaming. Randy's getting set up here. Randy, Joey here with us from Springfield, Illinois. Oh, Joey, great to have you with us. How you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. I spent uh, time in Springfield on the drive to Peoria many times. My daughter attended Bradley, so I, we would stop off in Springfield a lot. I love Springfield, Illinois. 
Yeah, my my, uh, my brother actually is reading up on that Rams case quite a bit. He says he's talked to you a couple times about that. Oh, good. Yeah, it's it's a fun thing to talk about. <laughs> I, I learn a lot about the law. Yeah, you have, Randy. You might as well be a lawyer at this point. You have all the jargon down. Actually, somebody who uh, is an adjunct professor told me last week, he said, you could be in my law school class because I had a thought that was accurate. A legal thought? Yeah. How about that? I'm over here like Elle Woods. I object. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, she actually turned into quite a great lawyer. She did. It, uh, she was one of the best. All right, Randy. Are you ready to face Joey? I'm ready. Question number one, happy 35th birthday to former Cardinal and World Series champion Daniel Descalso. Mm -hmm. After five seasons with the Cardinals, Descalso entered free agency in 2014, and he ultimately signed with which team? I believe he went and became friends with Nolan Arenado with the Colorado Rockies. On this day in 2006, the Cardinals won the pennant after Adam Wainwright struck out which met. Um, I'm going to go with Carlos Beltran being frozen on Uncle Charlie. You don't need more time there? No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Randy, who stepped in as Blue's interim coach after Mike Keenan was fired in 1997? Jimmy Roberts, one of my all-time favorites. He was a great guy. And on this day in 2002, a 16-year-old Wayne Rooney scored his first Premier League goal. Which MLS team did Rooney play for when he came to the U.S. near the end of his playing career? Runes. <laughs> Runes. You know who Runes likes? Big fan of Stapes. Oh yeah, Runes and Stapes are tight. Runes and Stapes. Love yeah. it. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna do the lifeline here. <laughs> sure. DC United, LA Galaxy, Sporting KC. Okay. I'm gonna throw Sporting KC out. So I'm gonna have it be between DC and LA. And I'm gonna say that if he was a free agent, he was going to the LA Galaxy. Close fight between Randy and Joey. Who won? Emily, tell him. The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. Brought to you by Optical Expressions. Providing St. Louis with top quality eye care and eyewear since 1997. Just win, baby. I have to, I have to pause because I know it's coming. Joey, great fight, but Randy just edged you out three to two. So Daniel Descalso, after five seasons with the Cardinals, entered free agency in 2014, and he signed with the Colorado Rockies. You guys both got that one correct. I would hope you guys both knew this one, and you did. On this day in 2006, Adam Wainwright struck out Carlos Beltran, and the Cardinals won the pennant. It was Jimmy Roberts who stepped in as Blues interim coach after Mike Keenan was fired in 97. And Wayne Rooney... Did not play for the L.A. Galaxy. Bo United. Both of you guessed that. It was D.C. United. That's the MLS team that he played for near the end of his playing career. He was with D.C. United from 2018 to 2020. Runes. Runes. D.C. United. You should have known that, Randy. Win, 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 win. Oh, man. Joey, thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. And have a great day in Springfield, Illinois. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. Appreciate you playing. And you know what? Shout out Abe Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Big we, time. We Lando Lincoln. That's right. We can't talk about Springfield, Illinois and not shout out Abe. I believe there's a Lincoln Museum that you can go to. There is. One, one of the all-time great hats in history, yeah. no? Oh, one of the best. Yeah, the old stovetop. Or stovepipe. Stovepipe, yeah. So uh, <laughs> when I worked at KMOX at the Gateway Tower building on uh, Memorial Drive, there was a plaque, and I would assume the plaque is still there, when you walk in the door, that said, Abe Lincoln slept here. What the hell difference does that make? 
that Abe Lincoln slept. And I do. I'm I guessing. Like it, I'm guessing it wasn't the Gateway Tower building, where he just he didn't take the elevator up to the third floor and do a, a segment on the Mighty Mox. Maybe he did. It could be, but I'm I'm thinking no. So I I don't know why. I mean, he probably went to Grant's farm and slept there too. But. Doesn't it give you a little bit of a sense of history to walk through those doors and say, oh, wow, I'm walking through the same doors and I'm in the same building where Abe Lincoln once slept? I think it would be just as cool if it said Stan Musial slept here. Hmm. I don't know. I think it's cool that that's on a plaque there. Uh, Fun fact at the University of Illinois, I believe it's the English building. It's one of the buildings on the right hand side of the quad. When you walk in, there's a huge bust of Abe Lincoln's head and students rub his nose for good luck on their exams as they go in and it's completely worn down into a nub. So shout out Abe Lincoln. Does he, uh, does it turn out that it does provide good luck from your experience? Work for me. Good deal. So thanks Abe. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the Cardinals and where they go from here as far as a manager is concerned with our buddy Mike Claiborne of the Cardinal Radio Network and Claibs Online. Claibs is next with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Let's go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, where our friend Mike Claiborne is standing by. You hear him during the season on Cardinal broadcasts on the Cardinal Network and on KMOX. And of course, you can see and hear his work and the work of those he works with at Claibs Online. Claves, always good to talk to you. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing well after that Blues win last night. Uh, it was an interesting game, but uh, I think we're going to have a lot of those this, this upcoming season with the Blues. And you know what? We have to give Doug Armstrong credit, and he, he gets a lot of credit. But in uh, an era in which his team has won a lot, they've still been able to find good young players, whether it was Pareko in the third round and it looks like Perunovic is on the way. Last night, the production from guys like Kostin and Kairou, that's not an easy thing to do. We saw what happened with the Red Wings after their dynasty and after Ken Holland left. It's not easy to win and continue to produce young players. Yeah, I agree with you, especially when you draft at the back end of the draft every year. Um, you know, it's it's hard to find those guys, and, and it really comes down to good scouting and guys who know how can we coach this guy up where he can contribute within the next year or two. And it's a real challenge, and it's almost, in my opinion, a lost art because of the way scouting is assessed these days with analytics and, you know, watching guys on video. I'm still a believer that there's no measurable for heart and body language, and you have to put eyes on an athlete these days. And uh, I give Doug Armstrong a whole lot of credit and how, how covertly he works. Uh, you remember when they were scouting Pareko, nobody from the Blues really could wear paraphernalia or anything to indicate that they were from the St. Louis Blues because they wanted that to be the best-kept secret in the National Hockey League because had other people started to see him up in Alaska, he might be playing somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Claves, we, of course, wanted to ask you about Mike Schilt. What was your reaction when you heard that the Cardinals were moving on from manager Mike Schilt? I was shocked. Um, I, you know, I never saw it coming, and, and apparently neither did Mike Schilt. Uh, you know, there are times in sports where you kind of have a feel, but I don't think I've ever had a situation like that where I just didn't feel like that, that was an issue. Um, you know, everything seemed like it was moving in a good direction. You know, it didn't end the way you wanted it to, but you felt like, okay, you know, they did a lot of good things especially down the stretch. So you had a lot of things to build on, but no, I I never saw it coming. 
Mike, you're around the club on a regular basis. Is there an internal candidate that you say, okay, that is a guy that fits the profile of the next Cardinal manager? I think as Tony LaRusso would say, I think it's a tie for first. I think each guy, and I'll start with, you know, who's on the roster now with uh, Ali Marmol and, and Stubby Clapp. They bring something different, but they also are similar in how they do things, both very detailed. Uh, Stubby has managed before in the minor leagues and has won. Um, but I, I think they both come from different schools. Stubby is, is definitely comes from the old school. Ali is a younger guy who's had a chance to embrace uh, how the game is wa- taught today. Uh, I, I think they both have something good to offer. Now, if you look outside the organization, you know, obviously Skip Schumacher's name comes up. He's been in another organization, so maybe he takes – well, I don't know if you want to take anything from the way San Diego brings up <laughs> players. But in any event, he understands that element, uh, hasn't managed. and But, you know, I think we've seen that, um, you know, you don't have to necessarily have managed elsewhere in order to be successful. Um, but, you know, those two or those three guys, and then if you look outside the box, I, I really think that Carlos Beltran – is the most intriguing candidate out there. Uh, first of all, maybe one of the classiest athletes to ever come from St. Louis. Understood the game. Uh, taught young players how to watch the game in the dugout. I know he got caught up in the hacking deal, or not the hacking deal, the, uh, the stealing deal, the sign-stealing deal. But he's the only guy that's still paying a price for that. He and Jeff Luno. And I just think he would be an interesting guy to just sit down and talk with because he had been tabbed to take the Mets job, but that didn't work out. But, man, he'd be an interesting guy to kick the tires on. And then you've got some other guys not in the Cardinal organization. You know, you, you have to take a look at a guy like Bob Melvin out in Oakland. Uh, he's in the last year of his deal next year. He'd be an interesting guy. Bruce Bochy wants to get back into baseball. He lives in Nashville these days, so that may be a connection there. So there are plenty of qualified candidates that can take that Cardinal job. Klebs, Mike Schultz was relieved of his duties because of what Mo described as, quote, philosophical differences. What's your interpretation of that? Uh, good question. You know, that, that that's, that's a pretty broad statement that Mo made, and maybe – it was one of those situations where they just weren't comfortable in how they were going to get to the next level. I think the Cardinals have succeeded in competing. I think the question is, how do we start winning? And I'm talking about winning in postseason. And, and I think maybe there's, they had different approaches on how they did it. Mike Schill was probably a little too strong in how he expressed himself. And um, obviously Mo and, and ownership felt like, you know what? we're not comfortable with that. So we're going to go in a different direction of somebody who's closer aligned to what our values and thoughts are. And I guess it's the way you go about it because obviously Tony, when he was here and that was a different era, but he was pretty brusque about the way that he approached the front office and the media about his desire for players. And philosophically, there does have to be a collaborative effort now in 2021. Doesn't there every top organization like Dave Roberts said last week about, Starting Knable in uh, in a playoff game, he said, "Hey, I, I have one vote." Yeah, I, I agree with you, and and you know, man, you know when you're with with each other for eight months out of the year, you're going to disagree. Okay, there's and you want that, you want discussion, you want dialogue, uh, but I think at some point you have to say, "Okay, you're the boss, 
I'm not. I'm here to, as Gene Stallings used to say, Randy, with Bill Bidwell, I'm here to serve at his pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what you have to understand as a manager. And, and you mentioned Dave Roberts. I, I think he is the, the poster child of what you speak of. Uh, and they are truly hands-on within that organization. I mean, their GM travels every road trip, okay? Most general managers don't do that. So, I mean, they're truly engaged in what they do. Um, and, and, you know, it's just a different way we do things today. And I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong. I think it still needs time. But when you come from the old school and you've been able to, you've been afforded to express your opinion in the past, people may not dis, may not agree with it. They nod their head and they move on. But in this situation, somebody decided that maybe your opinion was no longer needed. Claves, what do we have this week on Claves Online? Well, we got hockey, of course. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of hockey this week. Uh, Rammer and Keith Costas continue to talk baseball, and I think we'll be talking some baseball well throughout the uh, postseason because I don't envision the Cardinals uh, signing or hiring a manager until postseason is over with. So we'll have that working for us. Also, uh, we've got Huddle Up with Howard Richards. I don't know if you heard us last week. We visited with Tim Newsom former Dallas oh, yeah. Cowboy who blocked with Tony Dorsett and those guys. And we'll have some more fun guests like that coming up. Dr. Rick Lehman and I are going to visit with Jason Isringhausen. You know, when you talk about rehab and surgeries and all that, you know, Izzy is, is a poster child with all the surgeries he's had. And how do you deal with that? You know, that's something that I think we sometimes take for granted. It, it, the, the work may be harder in getting yourself ready to play again compared to just playing at all. So we're going to visit with Izzy about that and a few other things with regard to how pitchers develop these days. So a lot of good stuff coming up this week on ClavesOnline.com. We'll be checking it out. Claves, always good to talk to you. Thanks for the time. Have a great week. All right. You got to take care. You too. See you later. That is Mike Claiborne. And we always love joining him joining us on Tuesdays. Next up, we're going to head back to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, talk some blues hockey with Darren Pang. It's Tuesday in the Blues Booth on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. After a 7-4 win over the Coyotes last night, the Blues moved on to Vegas. That's where they are this morning. And that's where Darren Pang is going to be playing some golf today before the Blues take on the Golden Knights tomorrow night at T-Mobile Arena. And Panger is with us now. It's our Blues booth on 101 ESPN. And Darren is with us via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Michelle, Randy Panger, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, good morning to both of you. I'm uh... Yeah, very excited with the with the start to the season, guys. I mean, you know, we knew that last night was going to be a tough game because it was kind of one of those, man, trap games. You're looking at uh, what you did in Colorado, then you're looking at the big game coming up here in Vegas, and in the meantime, you know, you've got a, a game against a team that's not going to be a contender, but it's a dangerous kind of hockey game. And, Panger, before they got here, we heard a lot about Jordan Cairo, who had a breakout year last year, and Clem Costin. That was a great second period just from the standpoint of seeing those youngsters, wasn't it? I would, I would say so. I mean, actually, scoring five goals in just over five minutes is amazing in itself. Uh, but, 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 yeah, I mean, listen, you're, you're looking at the evolution of these players and you're looking at the way that they're developing. And, and uh, you know, the first time we saw Jordan Cairo, you know, I think for me it was in Traverse City. He and Robert Thomas were, were there for the prospects camp. And that's where you, you, you really get a good look at, hey, how do our 
prospects match up against, you know, the other team's top prospects, um, their peers, basically. And I left Traverse City and I said, I've never seen a player um, so fast a standstill than Jordan Cairo. And, you know, all the other things will probably come into play, Randy. Like, you know, can he manage the puck? Will he make smart plays in tough, tough you know, in, 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 in like tight hockey games? Those are the things that you develop. That's the evolution I'm talking about. And, boy, am I impressed with, with, uh, with what he's done on the defensive side of it. And that gives the coach trust in him to play him. And uh, so, he, you know, he's earned that part of it. And now, oh, my goodness, that, uh, that skill is something else. Um, and then, you know, and then – you know, Clem Costin is a unique player because, you know, quite frankly, I'm not, not sure exactly what kind of player, you know, he is or will become. Is he a power forward? Is he a skill forward? Uh, is he a top six? Is he a bottom six? Is he a penalty killer? Is he a power play guy? Uh, but, I, you know, I think last night was a, a real good indication of, uh, of what kind of skill he has and going into the right spots and that shot that he had um, a couple of times there was was obviously you know an NHL caliber shot which is fantastic Panger, at times last season, we were still waiting for the Blues to find that chemistry or really develop an identity. But I don't know if it was the trip to Vail or the fact that they've been able to hang out, but it really seems like this team is developing some chemistry pretty early. Yeah, you know, everybody talks about, you know, bonding trips and, you know, what happens there. But I do I do believe there's some benefits to starting on the road. I, I really do. I think, uh, and I have, you know, because of COVID, we haven't been able to be on the road, as you all know. And so you do miss out on what's going on on the road. Who's hanging out on the road? You know, are they, are they having fun? Are they not having fun? Are they smiling? Are they not smiling? Th- those little things. And then I, you know, I just think we've got a, a, a group of guys that really, truly, they like each other and they like being around each other and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to kind of let the other guy down. So, um, you know, chem- chemistry is a big thing now. I don't want to get too excited. I mean, they, I don't think the coach was very happy after last night's game. I'll just tell you that. I, I you know, I mean, you know, I, I think the one point that, that has to be made is, you know, Arizona is not going to be a playoff team. I mean, let's let's go down that road right now. They're they're going to try their best, but uh, you know, they they shouldn't be in the same conversation as the Blues at this particular point. But uh, they they didn't quit, and I think um, the Blues sort of learned a lesson last night of. You know, don't hang your goalie out to dry either. He's trying his rear end off. He's playing really, really hard. He's making great saves, and I thought it got a little loose. I thought they should have done a better job in protecting him, to be quite honest with you. And, Panger, is that a group effort? Is there anybody that's responsible for that, whether it is the defenseman or is that just the five that are on the ice at any given time? Oh, that's the whole That's the whole group. That's That's the five on the ice. That's... For sure. I mean, you you can't just lay that on the defenseman. You have to have a good defending team is all about five players because otherwise it's a five on two. And obviously we know that wouldn't work out very well. So um, the forwards got a little lax. Uh, the D again, we've, I think we've talked, talked about this last week and I know on our broadcast, we've talked about it, that the D they, you know, they're determined to be meaner in front of the net. They're determined to allow the goaltender to see the puck. They want to be a bit meaner back there. And so, uh, you know, so I, I guess it's a, it's a combination of the whole group right there. Panger, what have you seen so far, far this season out of Vladimir Tarasenko? Um, I don't know. Spurts here and there. Um, you know, like, I, I think it takes him a little while to get into the game, to be honest with you. The same thing happened in Colorado. But, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I think 
like last night at parts of the game, it looked like he was totally engaged and Robert Thomas made some terrific passes to him. Uh, by the way, I thought Robert Thomas was excellent last night. A great bounce back game from game one. But, uh, you know, I don't think Vladdy's uh, the easiest player to play with uh, if you're a centerman. And, but when it clicks, it can be magical. And I thought there were moments in last night's game where he was going to click and, and, uh, and he was going to get, you know, and he was going to score a couple of goals. But as it, as it turns out, um, you know, I, I don't think he's just there yet. Uh, in terms of overall confidence with the puck, especially in decisions in the defensive zone. Um, I think that's, that's, that's an area that I'm sure he'll want to tighten up um, and make, make, make better plays to put his teammates in a better position. Panger, he was a sharpshooter, and it's been a while now since Vladimir Tarasenko has been a premier goal scorer in the league. Do other teams fear him because of what he did in the past? Yeah, I, I still think that his, you know, his number is circled on the board of the opposition. I do. I, I do believe that, you know, in my conversations, even on the road with the other goaltenders or listening to the other goaltenders, is that um, they still fear his shot, still be aware of it. Um, you know, I, again, I do believe confidence is, is, is such a big thing. I mean, people just assume that because the guy has a lot of talent or he scored, you know, 40 or 35 goals in his career that, um, it just it just happens like that, but you know he hasn't he just hasn't played a lot in in in, in traffic uh, when the heat is on really um, other than the final game last year against Colorado uh, where he scored a couple of goals in the loss. I mean he was he was a non-factor then, but uh, you know again confidence is everything. Goal scores are streaky. Um, you get one, you you might get a bundle, and that that's all it might take. So again, going back to Vladdy, I think. I also think that during the course of the game, uh, that being in a goal scorer's position and not being far away from the net is obviously going to be the key. You can't score far away from the net at this league, and especially after you've had a couple of surgeries. But as far as I've seen, that wrist shot in practice when he's got time and space is still as lethal as it, as it was before. It's just the confidence of scoring against the goaltenders now for me. And, Panger, one of the questions that we had heading into this season was how close to 100% was Colton Pareko, and it's great to see him look like the old Colton Pareko again. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because the self-evaluation of these players is is really accurate. Um, after the game, you know, I knew that the coaches, you know, weren't happy. Um, it doesn't take long to get that sense. And so that's why I said that at the beginning about hanging the goalie out to dry. Well, I, I, I said that to, uh, to Colton Preco. I saw him. What happens is there's two buses that go to the rink, and one of them has the players to go early. Some of their carry-on luggage is on one bus. That may end up being the media bus uh, going to the airport afterwards. Well, the coaches started on our bus and then ended up on their bus, and <laughs> Colton Preco asked me what, what a little change with the buses. What did you guys say to the coaches? And I said, I, I think it might be the way you guys played tonight. And he said, he said yeah, he said, "Yeah, me especially. I wasn't very good." So there, just to give you an indication of, of you know how these players are and you know how tough they are on their own game. But in answering your question, Michelle, I think you know we need Colton Preco, you know, to be that guy. And it is wonderful to see him grab the puck and lug the puck up the ice or defend like he defends and and uh, and what have you. But uh, at the end of the day, if, if anybody thought he had a good game last night, I'll just tell you that he said. He didn't have a good game last night, but he had a terrific game in Colorado. Panger, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Enjoy your day in Vegas on the golf course, and we'll talk to you next week. 
That sounds great, guys. Have a great day. Thanks. That is Darren Pang, Blues Analyst on Valley Sports Midwest, and he'll join us every Tuesday morning during the hockey season here on 101 ESPN. Coming up, more reaction to the Mike Schilt public statement yesterday as he and the Cardinals have parted ways, and now they aren't going to say anything more about it. That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. One thing we learned about Mike Schilt over the last three plus years is that he's a humble individual. He is not a guy that is going to take credit for any success that his team had. He always passed the credit along to his coaches and his players and talked about how hard they worked. And yesterday he got a chance to talk about some of his accomplishments, including reaching the postseason three straight years before being let go by the Cardinals. I'm so grateful for the trust and opportunity I had in our player development department in the 13 years I was a part of it. A couple highlights being in 2007 at the end of Instructional League, sitting down at the head of the table as John Mazalot came in after recently named the general manager and informed our department that we were now going to rely on our homegrown talent even more and our future was our farm system. It was a privilege to help shepherd our system and reward that trust with players that came up and contributed to another era of successful Cardinals baseball. It was a player development department that won the 2011 and 2013 organizational uh, minor league baseball organizations of the year. Quite a tribute to our players, but also to our cohesive staff. Another highlight was working with Mark DeJohn and Gary Rock, among others, in an, on an organizational field manual that captured the teachings of the recently departed and legendary George Kissel. It's something that I'll always take great pride in and know that I left the the instructional aspect of organization in good hands. And Michelle, Mark DeJohn has retired now. Mike Schilt is no longer in the organization. Gary LaRock, who runs the Cardinals minor league system and is very good at what he does, He's the, the one left from that old school group. And I, I would hope that he still has influence within the organization in trying to develop players at the minor and major league levels in the right way. Does it make you nervous at all as someone who's followed Cardinal baseball for a long time to think about that, to think about that old guard not being there anymore and that the old way of doing things within or the old way of Cardinal baseball isn't really the standard anymore? Yes, because I get the impression that they think that the way that Whitey Herzog won and the way that Tony Larusa won doesn't work anymore, and nothing could be further from the truth. I understand that they're in love with math. Math, for a lot of people, is fun. Not fun for me. I'm not a math fan. But I always go back to what we talked about yesterday, the human element of the sport and the fact that you can't make a guy who can't hit a baseball hit a baseball. You can't turn Justin Williams into a great major league hitter just because you throw some information at numbers and numbers at him. At some point, I go back to Tony Gwynn, who would always say, see the ball, hit the ball. And 
it's a physical game. At some point, you have to understand that there's there's blood and flesh and bones that are actually doing the athletic things out there. It's not some mathematical equation. And there has to be a balance. There has to be a little bit of both for you to arrive at success. I always go back to what Mark McGuire told us about David Freeze in the postseason. Tony La Russa was considering moving on from David Freeze because he was not performing, but Mark McGuire saw something in him with his eyes, not the numbers. He saw something and said, stick with him and David Freeze became a Cardinal legend and a postseason hero because of it. Sometimes in any aspect of life, when you're dealing with human beings, you have to lean on what Tony La Russa said, men, not machines. Now, the Cardinals are just joining what everybody else is doing. There aren't many teams in baseball that are not leaning on analytics. And by the way, I I think analytics are a sensational tool to be used. I just don't think they're that they should be the be all and end all. And most people that actually play the game or coach the game think there will be a return to normalcy where rather than just counting on a guy throwing 100 miles an hour, teams will look at players that command the strike zone and are able to dot a corner and say, well, that guy can get a guy out just as good as a guy throwing 102 with sync. And I also think that offensively, there will be a return at some point to good, solid, fundamental baseball rather than swinging for a home run or taking a walk, being able to when you have a runner at second base, and I I don't think this rule is coming back, but being able to bunt a runner over from second with nobody out and then hit a sack fly to win a game in the bottom of the 11th inning. This also is really interesting when you spin it forward and you look at what the Cardinals will be looking for in their next manager. I think the role of manager has shifted. It's evolved. What organizations value in a person that's going to occupy mm-hmm. the manager managerial position has shifted. I wonder how important tactical decisions really are anymore to a front office or an ownership group that's looking to hire someone if they are already giving them the information of what the outcomes may be. Is it that you want us us being managerial candidates to follow what you're going to say. Is it the way that we deal with players and player relations? Is it how we look to the media? All of those things mattered before, but it seems like a lot of things that were important in the past have kind of been diminished as far as the managerial role is concerned. And uh, first of all, I agree with that 100%. But I also think from a personality standpoint, some guys are just inherently competitive and they're going to do whatever it takes to win. But there are going to be athletes out there, just like there are workers in any line of work, where if they know their boss isn't the boss, they aren't going to have a ton of respect for him. And Mm -hmm. here in St. Louis, we've learned that now, that the player's boss wasn't the boss. The boss is John Mozeliak. So what does that guy who is able to, to command respect in the locker room and get players to play hard for six months. What does that look like? A guy who's taking orders from the top and the players know, oh, if I don't play hard, it's not me because the guy at the top is going to fire the guy in the middle. That's what a manager manager is now. Baseball manager is middle management. You don't think players realize that? How much of an effect is that going to have on their performance? And that's a difficult spot for a manager to be in when mm-hmm. he's with these players day by day and pitch by pitch and is getting he's privy to a lot of things that the front office is not. Obviously the front office is plugged in, but it's very different when you're in it every day and you hear and see things and deal with these personalities every day. You may have a different 
difference of opinion as to what should happen or what you think may work when you're in it every day and you're not just looking at the numbers. You worked at a place with a lot of middle management and a lot of different <laughs> opinions, right? I did, yeah. So how did the general workforce react to that? How did they respond to middle management? Was there a, a high level of respect? Well, it was confusing a lot of times because you had so many cooks in the kitchen. If if you're trying to do a show one way and as a producer, I'm dealing with the talent and trying to execute things a certain way. And then we have several bosses that all have their input and their input is conflicting. It puts you in a tough spot. And a lot of times some of those people are just managing up They're They're not looking at what the best outcome is for you. They're looking at what the best outcome is for them and what their boss wants. So that's, that's a tough spot to be in too. When you have a player who may want something or you're seeing something with a player that you think that could be helpful. If you, if you change, things up, but you also have to manage up. Your job is contingent on you doing the things that your boss wants you to do. Maybe you just nailed why Mike Schilt is no longer the Cardinal manager. Because when you hear different things from Jeff Albert and Mike Schilt, and Jeff Albert obviously commands respect in that front office, maybe it's so, that simple. Maybe it's hearing two different messages and the main message from the top not being the one that Mike Schilt was deploying. Uh, I'll say this, though. There is a benefit sometimes in streamlining things because there is no confusion. I think that that it is better to have diverse opinions because one way might not always be the best way. And having someone to challenge you and perhaps cause you to think about something differently could lead to a more successful outcome. But it is very confusing when you have conflicting ideologies coming at you. And it's the Cardinals. This is not the first time they've made this move with Jeff Albert and Mark Budaska. They have talked consistently about streamlining the message and streamlining the approach, whether it's at the major league level or throughout the organization. So that is something that they are very much committed to. And the problem with that is, is that there's going to be a different approach that you're going to have in dealing with Paul Goldschmidt than there is with Harrison Bader. You can't get two guys like that to hit the same way. Harrison Bader has a different skill set than Paul Goldschmidt does. So a coach or coaching staff has to be versatile and amenable to players needing other things. And not everyone learns the same way. No, right, exactly. <laughs> not only does everyone need different resources in order to have success for them personally, not everyone learns the same way. And we talked about that with John Mosellock earlier in the season when he talked about the high-level curriculum and how they actively were trying to find different voices to help things get translated to certain players. So that's something that they're working on too. But, but clearly there is one philosophy and one message, and it's being deployed throughout the organization. This is not even though it's going to sound critical, it is not meant to be critical. It's just the the word that comes to mind, and it's been brought up a lot on social media. But it does kind of feel like the Cardinal manager is a puppet. Or that's what the, in the future will have to be. Yeah. Well, if, if there's philosophical differences, clearly autonomy is the goal, and dissension in the ranks is not something that they're looking mm-hmm. forward to. And you can assign the word puppet if you want, but clearly it's um, it's cohesiveness, which means that there's not going to be much of a, a dissenting opinion that's going to be welcomed I, in I, that role now. I guess when I ask my perception of who is pulling the strings, 
my perception is that the strings are pulled from up top. There was no doubt about Tony La Russa or Whitey Herzog as manager. They pulled the strings with that team. I get the sense now that the strings are pulled at a higher level. Can I tell you something about this that I still can't reconcile or at least has me still a little bit confused? Bill DeWitt is such a baseball guy, and he is someone who who cherishes this organization and the tradition and the way that they have been able to win in the past. And we know that he trusts John Mosley a lot complicitly. That's his capo, right? That's his his right-hand man. He's obviously given him a lot of power to run this organization. But I would think that he would look at Mike Schilt and everything that he brought to the table from a fundamental standpoint, the way that he revered the organization, the fact that he's a George Kissel disciple and that that would hold some weight with him. And that if Mike Schilt was saying, I have philosophical differences with the way that you're trying to run things. And those differences are rooted in what I have learned in the Cardinals organization. And what I have learned is successful baseball. I would just think that that Mr. DeWitt might give that more thought. And maybe he did. We don't know. I haven't asked him that question. But for someone who is so deeply ingrained with the history of Cardinal baseball. And I know he's a forward-thinking guy and has been for a long time, and he's somebody that desperately wants to win again. But I don't know. It just surprised me a little bit that he wouldn't lean more on the side of of Cardinal history and of Cardinal baseball. All we can do as fans is hope that they, they do know what they're doing, that they did the right thing, and the philosophical differences were ones that prevented them from winning the World Series, and that what their philosophy is will allow them to win the World Series. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and uh, that is today's big thing. Coming up, you're killing me, Smalls, on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> The Blues open up their home season on Saturday, and we've got the 14th Street Party presented by 101 ESPN. Outside Enterprise Center fans, with or without tickets, can join in the pregame fun, enjoy live music from the Steve Ewing Band, hear from Blues broadcasters, and have the chance to win Blues prizes throughout the day. Bud Light Happy Hour pricing, local food trucks, appearances by Louie and Barkley, and more. The Blues, Bud Light, 14th Street Party, this Saturday starting at 2 p.m. Get details now at 101ESPN.com. It is time for... You're killing me, Smalls. Randy, Vander Kane back in the news and it's Kane not great. Kane are in the news and it's not great. He's been dis- suspended for 21 games without pay by the NHL for an established violation of the NHL and NHLPA COVID-19 protocol. You're probably thinking, well, what did he do? How did he uh, violate the protocols? Well, sources confirmed earlier this month, this is from Greg Wyshynski of ESPN, that he was in being investigated over allegations that he submitted a fake COVID-19 vaccination card to the NHL and the Sharks. Don't use a fake vaccination card when you're trying to maintain employment. Come on, Evander, you're supposed to be smarter than that. And you said this is a sp- suspension without pay? Correct. So I guess to make money, he'll just go to Vegas? And- Randy, the money that he's forfeiting goes to the Players Emergency Assistant Fund. Okay, that's good. But, but he's still got to make money somehow, and he's a professional gambler, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Except he filed for bankruptcy. I was gonna say, is he is he a good gambler? I don't yeah, know. Maybe not. He's a uh, he's he's leading a troubled existence right now. Not many things are going his way. That's true. It seems like he's always in the news, and it's always something that's not favorable to him. Yeah, I, I, well, be better, Evander. Just be better. Don't fake your wherever you are, whoever you are. Don't fake your vaccine card. That just seems like such 
a bonehead thing to do. Yeah. Allegedly, though, it works for some people in pro sports that throw around a pigskin for a living or chase one, whatever. What, to submit a fake card? Yeah, I don't think that there's much. Uh, there's as much investigatory activity going on in some footballs, fo- uh, sports leagues. Why did I say football? Than others. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I have no idea. You're killing me, Smalls. So, uh, Lindsay Theory over at ESPN has an interesting story uh, about the Rams, Randy, and about mm. Sean McVay and Jared Goff and the way that relationship disintegrated. And he indicates, Sean McVay does, that he wishes there was better communication with Jared Goff towards the end there. He said this about the way that things ended because Jared Goff had shared with reporters that Sean McVay and the Rams had no contact with him from the time the season ended to when he received the phone call about the trade and that he was blindsided about the move. And here's what Sean McVay had to say about that. You don't want to catch guys off guard. It came together a lot faster than anybody anticipated. But yeah, of course, I think that anytime that tough decisions and things like that where people are affected, you always want to be as understanding, as empathetic as possible. Think about it through the other person's lens. And there's certainly things that I know I would do a little bit differently if or when those situations arrive in the future. He then insisted that when you see a player with the caliber of the caliber of Matt Matthew Stafford, you have to move quickly. And they just didn't have time to give Jared Goff a call to give him a heads up. They just had time to call him and say, hey, you're traded. You're going to Detroit, buddy. So, Michelle, let me get this straight. No communication between the Rams and an entity that they were going to part ways with before it occurred. That is what I'm telling you. Seems to be an organizational thing. (laughs) A philosophy. Yeah, right. One of the pillars, really. No difference of philosophy there. Yeah. Hey, uh, we're done with you. Also, I understand that Jared Goff had been in the organization a long time, and obviously there were relationships there. But what do you really expect? Do you really expect Sean McVay to call you and say, Matthew Stafford could be on the market? There's a chance that you're going to get moved. Yeah, no. Heads up. No, the, you, you might tell the agent that, but you don't tell Jared Goff that. You're, right, you're exactly right. What kind of conversation is that going to be, and, really? And I understand it, it's a feeling of betrayal. You never want to feel blindsided by an organization. But if you pay even an ounce of attention to the things that are being said in the media, if you're Jared Goff, you couldn't have felt super comfortable about your position with the team. And he did have a $134 million contract with $60 million guaranteed. So the business benefited him, too. True. You're killing me, Smalls. And finally, Randy, something I wanted to bring to your attention. After more than two decades, the official wizard of Christchurch, New Zealand, has lost his job. He was believed to be the world's only wizard on a government payroll. He got about 10 grand annually by the city for acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services. And now he's out of a job. So that opening is there, in case you're interested, if you want to be the official wizard of Christchurch, New Zealand. Well, we don't want to lose our wizard here in St. Louis, so I hope he doesn't go there. Yeah, true. But I'm wondering if this wizard maybe dabbles at all in devil magic. And now that this person is out of a job, maybe would like to come stateside. I don't know. That might be. Just a thought. Or could Shilty take that gig? Because Schulte developed a lot of those devil magic guys. Great point. So I don't know if he wants to go abroad, though. Probably Seems not. like, you know, San Diego could be a good landing spot for him. Great weather. Wouldn't you feel a little conscientious if you were the person that had to fire a wizard? <laughs> what's going to happen to me here? 
Yeah, that it's one thing to fire someone like Mike Chilt. I can't imagine yeah. that that was a an easy conversation yeah. based on the relationship you have with him. But I don't think you're gonna that he's gonna curse me. No, that's I, exactly it. I don't think that there's bad juju coming my way. And if you're gonna fire, this is the official wizard too. Right, he's official the one. Capacities. This is the wizard. But if there's of this a town wizard that has juice, that wizard has juice. Big time juice. And you're gonna fire him? Yeah. Also, how would you like to have that job? You meet, say you're single. You meet someone. You go on a first date. What do you do? Oh, I work at a bank. What do you do? Well, I get paid by the city. I'm the official wizard for acts of wizardry <laughs> and other wizard-like services. That's impressive. Let's talk more. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. You got it. Coming up next, we're going to cross things over with Danny Mac. The Danny Mac Show with BK is coming up at the top of the hour on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. I started talking again. I wasn't paying attention to Emily. I need to pay attention to Emily more. Well, you can't see her hit the buttons. I can. My vantage point, I see when she hits it in your mic. (laughs) I was talking about one of the frustrating things in this business, and one of the few Is when you uh, turn on the mic and you don't think it's on? Well, that's frustrating, yes. (laughs) But another frustrating thing is when you have a headphone cord that is twisted and tangled that you can't get untwisted and tangled. This was... uh, Danny Mac had that problem. That was frustrating. It is. It's it's like a Rubik's cube. Yeah. Trying to figure out how to get the uh, the wires through the other part, and then the other part through that thing, and then untwist, wind, do the whole deal. Glad you got it done. Oh, I feel better about it. Dan, Michelle, and I were having this conversation, and I want you to weigh in because you're closer to the situation. And we may have been making a mistake here over the last couple of days in talking about the Cardinals being as married to analytics as they are and having people perhaps get the impression. We don't want people to get the impression. And Ben Fred wrote about this this morning at STLtoday.com. Mike Schilt is in on analytics. Absolutely. Mike, yeah. He, he is the perfect blend of old school and new, new school. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked about it last week. Um, I brought up an example where I went to Mike and he made a move that uh, on the surface just didn't make any sense. One time, and uh, I, I went to him and I just said, "I don't, I don't, you know, walk me through this. I don't. I mean, I know you have reasons. So, what are your reasons?" And he said, "Well, this guy does. I mean, it was all analytics, mm-hmm. and the move paid off." He said, "So we had an understanding that this guy was going to throw a sinker, and then the spin rate. His last start was this. We saw him winding down. We had a low ball hitter. We were going to do this. We thought he'd pull the ball. We didn't know they were going to shift. I mean, he just started doing everything." He said, so that's why I made the move. And it was nothing that made sense from a traditional mm-hmm. baseball point of view. So a lot of the moves that are made throughout Major League Baseball are moves that you just kind of look at and you scratch your head if you've been watching a long time and you say, that that doesn't make a lot of sense. But they're moving, the, the, you know, they've, they've got the analytics. And then you, I think if you look at this, you have to use the analytics. You got to use the human side. I mean, you, you got to find a mixture of both. There was a play last week at the end of the Rangers, I think their winning game against Tampa, where Brian Anderson said, bunting isn't the easiest thing in the world. And John Smoltz said, well, yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> And then Kike Hernandez didn't, but he hit that little dribbler down the first baseline to win the game. Yeah, But there is a difference of opinion about whether or not bunting is easy, too. I heard a stat, uh, I think it was... I was listening to the ball game maybe Friday or Saturday, 
and it's something like the last 10 years or five years, whatever it was. But if you out-homered the other team, you're like 76-12 and 12 in postseason mm-hmm. play right now. 76-12 and 12 or 76-10. and 10. Wow. I mean, it was an incredible uh, difference in terms of when you hit for power and you hit for home runs. Uh, and you hit a lot of home runs, you're going to win. Now, Red Sox have 20 in this postseason. Yeah. Um, and, I, and at one point over the weekend, might have been by Sunday, every team that had been out-homered won. Or, uh, I'm, excuse me, that out-homered their opposition had won those games. So, you know, I mean, you, you look at that and you say, well, you know, are we scratching for a run or are we trying to play for a two-run homer? And, I, you know, I, I think there's a, a place for all of it. I, I really do. And I'll say this, too. I mean, I'm, I'm tight with Mike uh, Schilt, and um, you had a shout out yesterday. That was nice oh, yeah. of him. Yeah. It was classy. I, I thought his his uh, statement was all class. Yeah, 100%. I mean that's that's the way he's been with me, and I always just go on how people treat me, and he was uh, he was terrific to me. So I, I think he's a very good manager, and I think if you look at why they made the move, it certainly wasn't because of baseball decisions. I mean, you're over 162 games. You're going to have, why'd you bring Reyes in? And why did you pinch hit Matt Carpenter? And why should you do this, that, and the other? I understand that. That's part of baseball. But generally speaking, he's really good at what he does. And he'll find a home. And the thing is, too, even if he's not managing, if I'm an organization, uh, I would love to see what he could do just even to get his opinion on running a minor league system, Mm -hmm. you know? That kind of thing, player development, because he's really good at it. One other thing that really stuck, stood out to me in his statement yesterday, and I'm with you all class, is just how much he loved the Cardinals organization. And you're obviously dedicated to a place when you spend almost two decades there. And we knew how much Mike Schilt revered the Cardinals organization. But after he's fired, when in his statement he says, I cared more about the organization's success than I did my per- my own personal success, that just really stood out to me. Yeah, um, we were talking uh, right after the Mo DeWitt press conference conference we we spoke right away and he was you know he was stunned he was shook up he didn't see it coming and he was emotional you know he mm-hmm. loved being a cardinal he had, he had done that for 18 years and he grew up with the Orioles organization um literally you know the guy that's in the clubhouse doing the the wash and the laundry and cleaning the spikes Shining and shoes, yeah right? doing all that stuff his mom worked in um a front office for at a minor league affiliate. And so he grew up an Orioles fan, which has great history, obviously, and then comes over to the Cardinals and tremendous history here in St. Louis. So that wasn't lost on him. I mean, it was a, a very tough day for he and his family, for sure. And uh, just as a note here, Michael Elias and Sigma Dahl, who run that Orioles front office, they know him very well. So uh, he would be, a, a, a if they're going to hire anybody, they've been firing, 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 and not replacing. If they're going to hire anybody, he'd be a good guy to hire. I, uh, I would think that the Padres would have a, a vested interest in, in Mike. Um, you know, they, they want a guy. Well, first of all, they, they have to, A.J. Preller has to make the right hire. So he's had two back-to-back and Andy Green, Jace Tingler that came in with great resumes, but yet the lack of experience, and apparently it did catch up with them. Um, and they've talked about, we have to get a guy with experience in here. Well, you're going to get a guy that's been around the game forever, and Mike Schilt, but now with the managerial experience and the fact that he's gotten into postseason play three years in a row and won, um, and and dealing with personalities. I mean, you've got Machado, you got Tatis, you got 
Hosmer. I mean, you, you've got a, a really good core. It's just a matter of going out and getting their pitching and seeing what he can do. Looking forward to the Danny Mac show. All right, BK will be with us. Uh, we'll dive into what's going on in baseball around the league. Sounds great. Great right. job by our producer engineer, Emily Butcher. Thank you. Thank you. Michelle, this was great. Tomorrow is? Hump day. Hump day. Uh, we thank you for tuning in, texting in, being a part of the show for all of us until tomorrow morning at 7. Have a great day, St. Louis. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. From your workout playlist to your social media feed, personal's the way to go. And if personal leads to an affordable price, even better. With the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you get the coverage you want at an affordable price just for you. And a policy that helps cover what's most important to you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com today to create your State Farm Personal Price Plan. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary.